Welcome to Publishing Hub, a podcast about publishing issues. For our first episode, we're at the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies at Oxford Brookes University, where lecturer Claire Squires will introduce today's guest, Laura Atkins. The title of Laura's talk is Editorial Reflections, Cultural Expression and Children's Publishing. has worked for several years in children's publishing in the States and she's going to tell you quite a lot about that today. She's now based in the UK. She um, did an MA in children's literature at Roehampton University and has also been pursuing um, further research based around some of the issues that she's going to be talking about today to do with diversity um, in children's books, which is a kind of fascinating area that the publishing industry has, has been looking at um, and Laura's been looking at in her, in her own research, but also in the publications that she was involved with. She was, she's a steering committee member for the recent Diversity Matters um, conference, um, which was looking at growing markets in children's publishing. And she also runs the Children's Literature Conferences at the National Centre for Research in Children's Literature, which is based at Roehampton. I'm delighted that she's here to talk to us today. I want to thank you all very much for inviting me to give this lecture, and I'm also going to be interacting with the the technology for PowerPoint as well, so it's very technological. Um, So the title of my talk today is Editorial Reflections, Cultural Expression and Children's Publishing. And as Claire said, a lot of what I'm going to talk to you is um, about my own experiences working in uh, publishing in the United States on multicultural children's books. But I'm going to start off with some sort of more general reflections, mostly based in the UK, but looking at both the US and the UK in terms of what gets published and how that relates to kind of what the demographics are in both places. Um, but I wanted to start off with a quote. Um, and this is Joel Taxel from Children's Literature at the Turn of the Century Toward a politi- Political Economy of the Publishing Industry. And what he says is, While obvious to those within the industry, the impact of the business side of children's literature has not been given the sustained and systematic scrutiny it deserves by children's literature scholars and the educational community in general. Um, Now this is probably the group of people who would most respond to this in some ways because you're here studying how the business of publishing works. Um, I think it's something within academia and my study doing the MA was in a literature department and often people look at children's books within say library science or education. But I think there is a real lack of study of the publication process and how that affects and mediates the books that are ultimately produced. So that's a lot of what's kind of driven me into this area myself. Um, And Joel Taxel is one of the people, if you're interested in this area, who's written quite a lot about kind of publication and the children's industry and and has also interest in kind of multicultural books, so he's a good resource. Um, So starting with why is this important? What's the relevance um, of this area of study? Um, I think, as we all know, in today's kind of global world where we have mass migration, people moving from place to place, people from different backgrounds and with different beliefs coming together, this is obviously becoming more and more of a kind of a fraught area where there's a potential for conflict. Um, And I think books, and children's books in particular, have a real role to play. Um, I would guess most of us here are are readers, and we're probably readers as children, and know that books are an opportunity, both as a mirror to see your own experience reflected, but also as a window to see other people's experiences. And if we're looking at kind of difference or things that we're not familiar with, books can be a way for people to perhaps respond differently or be more comfortable with difference. 
So I think, you know, the children's books that are published are very important, and, and how, uh, also in the educational, you know, with the books that you read in schools, et cetera, how much they actually reflect the cultures that they are based in. Um, particular relevance, how have children's books been involved in this recently? Um, a lot of you probably know about in Denmark the, the recent outrage around the, the comics that were published in the newspapers, but I don't know how many of you know that it actually started with a children's book. Um, Kare Blutgen, and if anyone's Danish, you can correct my pronunciation there, um, was a children's book author, and he had written a book called The Quran and the Life of the Prophet Muhammad, and had not been able to find an illustrator of the book because the illustrators were concerned about the implications of illustrating. And it was at that point that the newspaper took it up as a sort of freedom of speech itch issue and published, got cartoonists to create the cartoons. So I think it's just an interesting place where children's books actually were right at the intersection of some of these issues that then um, came up. Um, but coming kind of further away and stepping back and looking at kind of what the lay of the land is, just in terms of languages, and I know part of what you can look at in this MA is different language issues that come up with publishing. Um, just a little kind of factoid here. The, the city in the world that has the second highest number of languages spoken is, well, I don't know, does anyone want to guess? New York. New York, very good. Do you know how many? A hundred. All right, we're close. Two hundred. Two hundred languages. Okay. Um, what do you think is the, the city that has the most languages spoken? London. London. Good. Okay. And how many? <laughs> Anyone else? We'll see. It is 300 languages, which I, I just heard this statistic recently, and I thought it was quite shocking to think that there would be that big a difference, and in one city, 300 different languages spoken. Um, Ken Livingston was, I don't know how many of you know we're English, or even just know because he's fairly notorious, but he's the mayor of London. And he's a big supporter of the um, London Schools and the Black Child Conference, which happens annually, which is an amazing conference if you're interested in this issue. It's, it's free. 3,000 teachers come together, and out of the, I would say out of that, probably 300 were white. So it was a really interesting experience to be somewhere. Um, but in any case, that was a statistic that he gave. Um, so how do the publishers respond to this reality, especially given that, as many of us know, in England, London is really the center of a lot of what happens and what gets published. Not a lot. There are a few publishers that focus on doing dual language books. Publishers like Millet, which publish um, books in over 25 languages along with English. Um, another one is Mantra Lingua, and I'll give you details about them later. And they actually publish in 53 languages. So there are some publishers that are starting to respond to this kind of diversity um, of language, which also reflects on how many people are coming from different backgrounds, experiences. Um, in terms of kind of ethnic diversity and statistically how the books reflect what gets published. It's a bit easier to look at this in the United States because this organization, the Cooperative Children's Book Center that's based in Wisconsin, actually has kept track for the last 20 or so years of how many books are published and how many are by and about, say, African Americans, American Indians, um, et cetera. And so you can kind of see in 2005, out of the 5,000 books published, the CCBC received 2,800. Though of those, you figure they're probably getting most of the books that are sort of multicultural because people are aware that they're keeping track of this. And so those are the numbers that you get. Um, now this is something that Jane Dengi, who I've got at the bottom here, writes about, and I've sort of brought out the main statistics that she gives, but she wrote, in 2001, 40% of children in the US were of color, and that's in the United States, the kind of terminology that's used, that's sort of acceptable or seen as acceptable here you could be ethnic minority, it could be non-white. It's actually quite a tricky area, even what you use kind of in terms of your language. 
Um, and she says, and that number continues to rise. In 2003, 8% of the 5,000 children's books published were by and or about people of color, a statistic that has remained fairly constant in recent years. And I think looking at that difference is quite striking, that 8% of the books published as opposed to 40% of the population. Clearly, there's a real difference in terms of what the books are reflecting and what's getting published. And I think you know, it reflects in a way on sort of the, what the culture is of the publishing industry, who works within it, and who's seen as the market, which is something I'll talk about more. Now, in the UK, as I said, there, it, you can't really find, at least I haven't found a source of similar statistics of the books published. But just in terms of the demographics, um, in 2001, 8% of the population in the UK were self-identified as ethnic minority, which was a number that grew in London to almost 30%. And I think you'll find it's often in cities like Leicester, Manchester, that the, the population kind of shifts in that way. But um, Francesca Dow, who's the managing director at Puffin Books, gave this statistic at the Diversity Matters Conference and said that by 2010, <coughs> one in five school children in the UK will be from black and minority ethnic backgrounds. So again, this is a real growing population. And in terms of birth numbers, kind of the white population is reproducing at a much slower rate. So this is a, a population shift that's going to happen. And as she said at this conference, this isn't just a kind of a moral imperative for publishers to be reflecting the populations that they serve, but it's actually a business imperative. <coughs> this is you know, a huge part of the market. And it's not really being served. I mean, if any of you go into bookstores, you know, you probably get a pretty quick sense of what's available. Um, and I can tell you it's nowhere near reflects the, the reality of what the population is. So that's kind of the, 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 the situation as it is now. Um, now what I'm going to tell you about in more detail is kind of my own experience working in the publishing industry and give you some of the stories of the books that I worked on, kind of keeping in mind what the, the situation is. Um, so I started off working at Children's Book Press, which is a nonprofit publisher of multicultural picture books. And they also do quite a lot of bilingual books, especially in Spanish. Um, it's based in San Francisco, which I think was an important part of the experience because it was not within the kind of New York establishment publishing world. Also, as a nonprofit, it could be mission-driven rather than as much profit-driven um, because we were funded. And uh, I was there for four years. I started as an assistant an editorial assistant and then became an assistant project editor. This was a very small organization. There were eight people there. And my job was to work really closely with the publisher on the whole process of acquiring and developing books. So not just the selection and then the editing, but actually working with the freelance designers that we had on the art direction. And in fact, I was responsible for production and dealing with our print brokers in terms of the printing of the books. So one comment I would say is that if you're out there looking for jobs, actually working at a small publisher can be a great opportunity to really get a broad picture of what publishing is like. It was a, a real kind of eye-opener for me in that way. So after that, I went for a year to Orchard Books, which is in New York City. And it was a more kind of mainstream, mid-sized publisher. And there, I focused on, again, working with a publisher on imports, actually mainly from the UK. So I was Americanizing. I was taking things and you know changing your S's to Z's and, or Z's, and, et cetera. Um, and then after that, I spent two years Oh, too bad, sorry, you can't see the website, but if you go to leanlow.com, then you'll see it, um, at Leanlow Books, which is in New York City and is a family-owned publisher of multicultural children's books. Um, and is actually one of the few publishers, in children's publishers, that's owned by people who are not white. It was um, founded by two Chinese-American men who started it with the mission to publish multicultural books. Um, but again, being within New York, it was a 
kind of a more, I'd say, traditional in a lot of ways in, in the way that it was run. And there, that was my first role as, as full editor, where I was acquiring and developing books. Um, so there were a couple of things that I s sort of came to be aware of as I was working in these publishers. And one was just my own role as an editor and the kind of subjectivity I brought to that in terms of my taste, you know, what did I like, what I didn't like, um, but also starting to realize how much an editor's own, how they've been educated, what their sense is of what makes a good story, what's appropriate for children and what isn't, all are going to play a major role in dictating what they end up feeling that should be acquired or not. And in interviewing editors about, oh, why do you choose the books that you choose, a lot of the times it'll be things like, oh, it's a good story, or it grabbed me, or it's something about the voice, which give a sort of an intuitive, subjective sense of what the process is that I think sometimes belies the construct within which that happens, which all happens as a result of ideology of the culture and the situation where that person comes from, and is also driven by the dominant culture of, of whichever, say, in the United States, the kind of white middle class, I would say, in publishing, and as, as well in terms of political power. Um, and how that affects what gets published. Now, this is something that John Stevens has written about in his book, Language and Ideology in Children's Fiction, um, which is an excellent book. It's, it's dense, and what he's looking at is much more of the text themselves as opposed to the production of the text. But he says, writing for children is usually purposeful, its intention being to foster in the child reader a positive apperception of some sociocultural values that, it is assumed, are shared by author and audience. These values include contemporary morality and ethics, a sense of what is valuable in the culture's past, and aspirations about the present and future. So I think, again, coming back to the sense of what an editor individually is going to like or not like and what they're going to select, all of that is going to be very much a result of the ideology of the culture that they come from. So that was something I became aware of. And the other thing had to do with market pressure. And I'm sure this is something you guys will be looking at in a fair amount of detail. Um, particularly at Lee and Lowe and Children's Book Press, it was the institutional market that we sold to mainly. So teachers, librarians, school librarians. And I started to see that the expectations of what that perceived market would accept, again, affected what we acquired and then how we edited and what kinds of changes we made. And again, I'll talk about that a little bit more specifically in terms of some of the books and the issues that came up around it. But so I think, you know, going in and, and thinking that the books were just the... Um, the production of the author and editor, which is still the way that when we study children's books, usually we talk about it as a sort of unmediated, this is the author's text or the artist's illustrations. And I think the publication process is a major mediating factor that a lot of people don't take into consideration when they're looking at the books that are produced. Um, now, this is something that Twyla Hill has talked about um, in her article, An American Fairy Tale, Multicultural Children's Books in American Fairy Tale. She says, Publishers control the first gate in the production of children's books. Editors choose books to fit in with the past tradition of the house, current market conditions, and the mindset of that particular editor, all of which tends to make conventional books more publishable. I think that's just something to think about in terms of what kind of changes are made. What are the books that come out at the end? Are they more conventional? Who's the audience? Who are they addressing? What does mainstream mean? Um, so that's sort of the, what, the things I started to think about as I was working in the industry. And now I'm going to tell you a couple of kind of stories. <coughs> oh, well. This, this is... I don't know why the decompressor doesn't like these, but this is the book that that's the cover of. And um, it's also got pictures of the author and the illustrator in the back, so you can come up and take a look if you want. Um, now, I see the rhythm 
was the suggestion of the artist Michelle um, Wood, who we had worked with on a previous book. And she wanted to do a picture book about the history of African-American music. So the idea of a 32-page picture book on 500 years of African-American history, quite an ambitious idea. And um, Michelle is African-American. And Toyomi Igus, who's half African-American and half Japanese, had written a text for Toyomi's previous book that we had done, I mean, Michelle's book that we'd done. And so it was up to Toyomi to come up with an idea for what to do with the text of the book. And what she suggested was to write poems on the theme of I See the Rhythm that would go with the different musical periods. So here you've got bebop, um, a tribute to jazz women. So each of the poems kind of goes along with it, and she incorporates lyrics from the songs in them. Um, and we thought that was a good idea, but there was concern that it wasn't quite enough meat, really, to do a book about this huge amount of time and history. So the publisher came up with the idea of putting definitions of each musical form in, which you have here. And I suggested the idea of having a timeline that in included dates, both musical dates, but also larger historical dates that were kind of relevant to the period of music. So, you know, this was kind of what we started off with. And so the illustrator went along and probably very, mostly independently created her paintings. The author started to write the poems and send them in, and the publisher, her husband, and myself worked on the definitions and the dates and the timeline, choosing them, figuring out how to say them, and giving the, feed the author feedback. Um, now this was a really exciting book to work on. I was just telling Claire, it felt to me like being back at university, I mean, getting this kind of exciting research project and pulling it together, and I, I think it, you know, we all were very excited about the book that came out of it. And in fact, it won the Coretta Scott King Award, which is um, an award for an African-American author and illustrator, so this was for the illustration, which made it also a very commercially successful book. Um, it did give me insight into what can be the kind of complex notion of authorship. Again, when I was saying, when an author, we say, wrote the book, um, in fact, this was a really collaborative process. Um, and in that, the publisher, her husband and myself, were all white, and in fact, Jewish, which in the New York publishing world in the States is quite a predominant culture in and of itself, which has its own kind of effect. And nothing came up that I can remember that were issues about different ideas about kind of language or what we should use. But I do wonder now, looking back at it, how much it was a product of the team of people who worked on developing the book, the events that we chose, the language that we used to describe them. Um, and those of us in the position of making power about what ultimately got published were all white. So um, I think it probably, you know, it would be a different book no matter who worked on it. But I think that's something where it started me thinking about okay, this is a, a collaborative and very complex process, and it really shapes the book that comes out of it. Um, now, what I think the amount of work that we put into this book was actually not necessarily typical of what a lot of people get to do, editors, because working at a small publisher, we didn't have that many titles. So in a way, I think it was a real privilege to get to put that amount of time into one book. Um, but so that was one thing, <coughs> situation that made me think, I'm not sure why this is doing this. I'll teach me from stealing them off the internet. <laughs> I didn't have a scanner, so maybe that's the problem. Okay, the next book, which again I can hold up and show you, was um, Deshaun Days. Now this is a book that I acquired at Lee and Lowe, so this was my first book that kind of I was working on independently. Um, in this case, the illustrator, I mean the author, Tony Medina, you probably can't see very well, who's, um, well he's actually Puerto Rican, which until I lived in New York, I didn't kind of realize that there's a, a sort of a blend between the black community and the Puerto Rican community in New York. Um, and he was a political spoken word poet. And he sent uh, four poems or so from the point of view of a boy called Deshaun, 
who was a 10-year-old kid growing up in the projects, or housing estates, I think you would say here. And, um, and I thought it, it was promising. And it, so it's written in poetry. So each kind of page is a different poem from his point of view about where he lives and, and his life. Um, so I wrote back and I said, this sounds great. You know, do you have any more? Which he then over the weekend wrote like 40 more poems and sent them to me. So we had far more than we could fit into a 32-page picture book. <coughs> so in that case, he and I worked together to kind of select the poems that we wanted to include. Um, and, you know, that in itself was very much a mediating process of the two of us. I'd say, I think we were fairly on the same wavelength. I mean, I came from kind of a Marxist family, so I think our political, you know, ideas were not totally in conflict. Um, and so we came up with a sort of collection of poems that we then presented to the publisher. And now there were quite a lot of concerns that came up. And in this case, it was the, the publisher, the managing editor, and myself who were looking at this book. Um, now, one of them was that one of the poems was called When I Get Asthma. And the boy Deshaun in the story has asthma, and he talks about how he you know, can't breathe very well, and he goes to the hospital, and the nurse gives him juice, and it makes him feel better. And um, It's not a heavy poem. It's very much from a child's perspective. But the publisher was concerned, in general, about the tone of the poems, that it was too heavy or too negative. Was there enough hope in the book? And so I was asked to go back to the author and, um, and ask him to write a different poem, which he did, which is this one here. And I'll show you the illustration. It's called I Love My Block. Um, I don't know if you can see there's kind of a boy there playing. Um, and so this, well, I'll read that. I loved my block and playing with my friends. In front of our building, the girls played double dutch, jumping fast and high, while us boys play skellies with shaving cream tops and different color clay inside. We play hopscotch, cops and robbers, and hide and seek too. We always think of fun things to do. And this poem, I don't think is one of the stronger ones in the book. I think there's other ones that are treating perhaps more complex themes, even things like I love rap, where the kind of lyricism of it are, are stronger. Um, you know, I think it's still true to Tony's voice, but it obviously changed the, the balance and the way the book worked in the end because of it. Um, another poem that uh, we discussed where there were some questions about it was, what is life like in the hood? And this poem did get included, and I'll show you the picture that goes with it, which is here. Now, the original text of it read, you don't just hear music, you hear sirens too, cop cars and ambulances screaming all the time, real loud at you. What is life like in the hood? Crack vials everywhere, broken bottles on the stairs, crooked spray paint, spray paint letters on benches and buildings, and dog mess smell in the air. Now the poem goes on to actually then talk about positives. In the summertime, he and his cousin play and do magic tricks, or they build snowmen. So it's sort of a balanced poem. Um, now the publisher's concern, and this is where the perceived market comes in, was with crack vials, and he said, he said, you don't want to put the word crack vials in a picture book. He, he said, literally, dem's fighting words, you know, for librarians. They're not going to like it. And I think that's the idea of this sort of kind of lowest common denominator market out there when people think what is going to be found acceptable, what's going to put people off. Obviously, publishing children's books is a very competitive market, getting them out there. It doesn't take that much for it to put people off. And in the United States, as some of you may be aware, the kind of political, you know, kind of conservatism in certain areas um, can also be a factor in terms of what people feel is acceptable or not. So again, I was asked to go back to the author and, and change that. And so this is what he changed it to, people walking everywhere. So I mean, you know, with all this, it was negotiation and, and publishing is something. It doesn't come out like it comes in. But I think it is interesting to see what kinds of changes are made and why. Um, and this issue of, of drugs and picture books is something that um, 
Diane Koenig has written about in her um, essay, Smoky Nights and Crack, Controversial Subjects and Current Children's Stories. Now that's a title I can't show you. It's, it's a picture book that's called the, the House That Crack Built, which was um, published by Chronicle Books and obviously uses the house that Jack built as kind of a metaphor for, you know. Um, and so this is what she said. Mon, who was a researcher, Mon's research, research showed that people in suburban neighborhoods tend to find the book appropriate for junior or senior high school students, which is, say, 12 to 18 years old, um, while those in urban settings think children as young as first grade need exposure to the story, so that's like six-year-olds. And again, I think that shows the difference of context and expectations of what is appropriate for children, um, what we want them to see or not. I mean, as Tony said, he lives in Harlem. He said, you walk around and there's crack vials in the street. It's just part of the reality. It's, it's not a horrible thing. It's just, you know, if you're a kid growing up, it's just part of what you see. But in terms of who's the audience for the books that are getting published and what people feel like is going to be acceptable, in this case, as she says here, the expectations of what is or isn't appropriate can really shift. And who the publisher considers as their audience will dictate, I think, often how the book gets changed. And, and that question of audience, and are these books for the children being reflected? Are they for all children? Are they for a dominant kind of universal? But universal, obviously, is a construct itself. What's the norm? It's, co it's constructed by what the dominant culture sees as the norm or universal. Um, <coughs> now, this is something that also came up with the New Voices Award. This won't work. Okay, well, this is a web page from Lee and Lowe, um, which is for the New Voices Award. It's just a picture, so it's not that important. But um, this is a, a contest that I managed in its first year, which was for an author of color who had not previously published a children's book. Um, we had manuscripts submit, and the winning, the one that won the award would get published, and then we'd have some honor awards as well. And in, in initiating this award, one of the things that I did was put out a really big word about this competition to try to get manuscripts to be submit. So, you know, putting things on listservs, contacting adult authors, asking people to spread the word, you know, to, to really try to generate interest and awareness of the award. The contest was for people who were not white to submit manuscripts. What were we looking for to publish? Was it something that would appeal to a kind of a mainstream white audience? Um, so that's, that's another situation. The other one was in um, inviting Native American submissions. Now, there are not that many Native American authors published in the United States, and it's quite a tricky area. Um, I'd say especially fraught in a way, in terms of kind of traditions and knowledge of tribes, and um, a lot of people have historically gotten it wrong. So there, there's a feeling that it's an important thing to have people writing from within the community. Um, and again, I put out a big kind of effort and wrote to different people who'd done anthologies and written for adults to, to ask people to kind of send submissions in. And I had one woman send a manuscript that was about a contemporary boy who develops a relationship with the large rock that he lies on and converses with. And um, I didn't, she had published for adults, and I didn't particularly like it. I mean, I didn't think it was a great story. That was my reaction. And as is fairly typical of editors, when I wrote my letter back, I came up with a different excuse about why we couldn't take it, which is that I said that um, Lee and Lowe focused on publishing realistic stories about contemporary children and that we didn't publish fantasy. And she wrote back and said, well, in my culture, this isn't fantasy. She said, we have a completely different relationship with nature from you know, the dominant kind of white perspective in the United States. And, and that was a real, oh, God. You know, it made me realize that something I just put out there, not even thinking about it, thinking, well, this is obviously you know, kind of something you'd put in fantasy, would be seen differently by someone from a different experience. And so, um, and this is something that 
Cynthia Latiche Smith, whose picture's over there, so you can go to your, her website if you want to see it, um, wrote about in this article um, called A Different Drum, Native American Writing. And in this case, she said she'd written a novel, which she showed to several friends. And the white friends she showed it to, there was a joke in it that they didn't get. And they didn't really understand its place in its story. And so she decided to take it out. And then she says, in the aftermath, I'm wondering if cutting that joke was the right decision. And it's left me pondering the larger question, is there any place in children's books for writing that reflects native idiosyncrasies? Or rather, if diversity of voice matters at all, does it only apply to diversity that appeals to the mainstream audience? So coming back to that idea of who's being addressed in the books that we write or publish. Um, a little aside, Deren Adebayo, who's an adult author at the recent launch of the Diversity and Publishing Network, gave a talk and he said he has friends and they come up to him and they say, hey, Deren, what do I do if I, you know, I want to get published, what should I do? And he said to them, he said, I tell them, hang out with white people. He said, because that's who your books are for. So that's who you should be hanging out with. So anyway, I thought that was an interesting comment. <laughs> Slightly, um, yeah, inflammatory. So in my family, again, luckily I can show you this book because I brought it. Um, in my experience when working on multicultural books, you would be talking about even very simple things like holidays or book uh, foods that people eat where it would be familiar to people coming from within that cultural background, but not to probably the white, you know, dominant majority audience. So, for instance, in this book, In My Family, written and illustrated by Carmen Lomas Garza, which is about her own memories of growing up on the border between Texas and Mexico, and just kind of stories that her family told, or kind of just little vignettes. Um, there's one in here called Empanadas. I'm going to put the text here. Um, and here's the picture. She says, once every year, my aunt Paz and Uncle Beto would make dozens and dozens of empanadas, sweet turnovers filled with sweet potato or squash from their garden. And I think in this case, it's, it's sort of like if you said, you know, we ate spaghetti, long stringy, you know, things made out of wheat or something. And it's not to say you shouldn't do this, but I think it's something to be aware of that by describing empanadas, the idea is you're spelling it out. And in this case, I think this was something that was kind of written between the publisher and the artist. It was sort of collaborative, but I'm sure something like that, Carmen herself wouldn't have said, this is what empanadas are, that it's very much being translated for a different audience. And I think the question of who is expected to do the translating, who's expected to kind of fill gaps and who isn't, um, is an important one for people to consider kind of at all levels as an editor, but also when the books are being marketed or you know the whole kind of publication process. Uh, you know, there's, there's implications for, for how that works in, ter in terms of cultural expression. Um, now, just a bit about the Diversity Matters Conference, which you can see the poster if you go to the website, which is on another page, um, took place in June in London. And it was a day and a half event. 200 people came from all areas of, of the publishing and book selling, teachers, librarians, you know, anyone who had kind of interest in this area. Um, and there was quite a lot of discussion. Now, just a few of the key issues that came up from this that I think are relevant um, were the lack of diversity of those who work in the publishing industry. And, you know, everyone said it's still very white-dominated. In fact, Oxbridge-dominated, which I, when I first read, I thought there was a university called Oxbridge that I didn't know about. So now I realize Oxford-Cambridge. Um, but what people said is uh, Arts Council has an internship that they run that's specifically geared towards attracting people from different backgrounds into the publishing industry. But what some people said is that alone, if you bring in someone as an editorial assistant or at the bottom level, that isn't going to make change, that it really needs to come from the top. 
um, and that organizations like the Booksellers Association need to take this on as a key issue that they're working on. Um, the other issue that came up was that the chains aren't selling the books. Um, there was an editor there from Scholastic who had worked on a book called Does My Head Look Big in This? Um, and she said they'd made a big effort not just to have it appeal to Muslim teenage girls, but to all teenage girls. And she showed the cover that they'd done, and, you know, and she said the chains, most of them didn't take it at all. And the one that did, which I think was Waterstones, only sold it in Asian communities. Um, so that was something that was discussed, especially as the chains have more and more power in terms of what books actually get out there. Um, teachers especially talk about books going out of print. So if they, say, made a book list of books that they wanted or, or libraries that serve teachers, they were finding that frequently they'd get a book maybe two years, three years, you know, out of after publication that were being taken out of print. And they were saying for their kind of timing, that was a real mismatch. It can take a while for a book to kind of develop a reputation. Um, and also the bookshops don't reflect the communities where they're based frequently. Um, there was a survey done, and, and most booksellers said in the last year they hadn't had a single author event with a person who wasn't white. Um, so, and as a result, a lot of people from minority, ethnic minority communities feel alienated by bookshops as a place to go buy books. Um, now, there are publishers that are working kind of actively to, to make a difference, and these are just some UK ones. Um, Tamarind focuses on black British picture books and some biographies. Um, Francis Lincoln is a, a mid-sized publisher, which about 50% of the, what they publish are multicultural books. Though um, Janetta Otterbury, the editorial director, was talking about some of the marketing um, difficulties they've had recently in that area as the American market is taking fewer and fewer co-editions on picture books. Um, Walker bu Books has a drive right now to try to attract more diverse authors and artists. There's a flyer that they're bringing around to conferences. Um, I mentioned already Montralingua and Millet, who publish um, bilingual, dual language books. Um, Pearson has this Pearson diversity um, committee, committee or area where at every level they're supposed to be looking at and considering implications of who gets hired, recruitment, and then also in terms of the books that get published. Um, so just to kind of sum up here, I think you know some strategies for, for moving forward on this. Now, these aren't ro rocket science, but I think just to kind of think about it, I mean, I think, first of all, just awareness of the issues that, that people see. I mean, if you think about the statistics I talked about at the beginning, you know, that this is an issue that's important and that needs consideration and thinking about. Um, and then I think open discussion. And this is an area that people can get very uncomfortable about. And I know, because I get uncomfortable about it, you know, as a white person talking about it, I feel like that, and, you know, and when I was editing the books, it's, but, you know, what kind of language do you use? What's appropriate? Do you offend people? It, it's a, it can be a real minefield. And I think people will often feel more comfortable and I hate to say this, but maybe even English people might feel even a little more uncomfortable, you know, talking about some of these issues. And I think, but that's really what needs to happen. And that's what a lot of people said at the Diversity Matters conference, though they did say we can't believe 20 years later we're having the same conversations that we did and that things haven't moved on as much as they have. So another reason why I think it needs to be built into the discussions that are happening. And finally, some positive measures to move things forward. You know, things like the Arts Council traineeship, but also, um, training that takes place at the publishers at high levels as well as say workshops and, and training that happens with editors looking at the sales and distribution channels um, Mallory Blackman who's the only black author who, to have gotten on the children's <laughs> bookseller list was saying why don't you know try different marketing strategies text people about new books or you know be a bit more kind of creative about the kind of I ideas of what has been how you get books out there in the past um, and I think John Agard who's a, a poet who's originally from Guyana 
um, gave a nice kind of definition for how he sees diversity that I thought kind of shifted this into a kind of more positive uh, picture. And he said, to him, diversity means every culture has a story to tell. And I think for those of us who love books and, and know what that experience is of, of living other people's experiences through the books that you read and getting access to these different worlds, that's true. And every culture has a, an exciting story that can be told. And, and how much of that is, is allowed to get through and with the nuance of language and experience that you know otherwise may be getting kind of mediated out through the publication process. And I just wanted to close with um, some resources. So there's the Diversity and Publishing Network, which is a, a, about a year old, I would say. And Alison Morrison, who's the head of marketing at Walker Books, was one of two people, along with Elise Dillmore, I think, who's at Barago. She's an editor. Um, started up. You can join it. It's a great organization. They have events, but they're also going into different publishers and interviewing people from different backgrounds about their own stories, getting into publishing, um, and, and so doing case studies. And they've recently been brought kind of within book trust, so they have a paid member of staff. and. Um, and the Diversity Matters Conference, if you want to see in great detail with all my mistakes and everything, but on my website I've got my very extensive notes that I took from the conference. So you can kind of see what the program was and what was discussed in various areas. Um, there were also two bookseller supplements that focused on this issue. Um, the May 2001 was included as a supplement at the Diversity Matters Conference, and, and you can still download it as a PDF, um, and that's Books for All. And in full color, was in March 12, 2004, and I couldn't find it online. Um, and those don't focus just on children's. Oh, can you? Okay. Um, well, Books for All, the, a lot of it's children's, but they look at the publishing industry in general. Um, and finally, I mentioned the Arts Council England Positive Action Publishing Traineeships. So that's another, um, sorry, I didn't have the web address there, but you can find that on my website, which is lauraatkins.com. So some of this information is there. And that's it. Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies can be found on our website ah.brooks.ac.uk slash publishing. The music for today's podcast was provided by Ghana, spelt G-A-H-N-A-H. Further information can be found on the website www.podsafeaudio.com. This is Chris Jennings signing off for our first Publishing Hub podcast.